Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Along Came a Writer Network. Opinions expressed in our shows do not necessarily reflect those of the network. Welcome to Chat Noir, Mystery and Suspense. I'm your host, Linda Kozar, and I like to call myself a frosted mini-week kind of author. I write both fiction and nonfiction books, and I'm both traditionally and indie published. You can check out my website at lindacozar.com and find me on social media and my books wherever fine books are sold. Today, it is my pleasure to interview suspense author Ramona Richards, and we're going to be discussing, among many other fun things, her latest novel, Burying Daisy Doe. Ramona Richards is the author or contributor of over 20 books, including Memory of Murder, Field of Danger, and The Taking of Carly Bradford. She is the associate publisher for Iron Stream Media and has previously worked for Abington Press and Thomas Nelson. Ramona makes her home just outside of Birmingham, Alabama. Find her at RamonaRichards.com. Well, welcome to the show, Ramona. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. You know, and I love your tagline, faith, hope, and the love of a good story. I've been a storyteller most of my life. My mother told me that I started making up stuff to entertain um, the family when I was three or four years old. And <laughs> um, I, come, I come from a long line of storytellers, so I think I, I was listening to the uncles and my aunts tell their stories and just fell into it. The family stories are the best. You couldn't write such good stories, you know. I mean, the truth is is um, actually better than fiction. <laughs> no. It is sometimes. <laughs> like like um, many authors, well, I know growing up, I would read books. I read all the books in the family library, just, you know, a little shelf. And... Um, I didn't like the endings of some of the books. Did, were you that way too? Did you want to kind of rewrite things or did you dream of writing? I did. Just, oh. um, yeah. there, there's an infamous family story where my brother um, came home from um, being out, I guess, with um, his youth group or his, his rocket club. My brother liked to blow up things very early. And <laughs> That's it cool. found me holed up in my room. Um, hand copying uh, a biography of Daniel Boone and he he went away and he came back a few minutes later and he says what are you doing and I said I want to write a book I was seven and he looked at me for a few minutes and he says is are you just copying that book and I said yes and he says well let me tell you about something (laughs) and he sat down and he said if you want to write your own books, you have to make them up yourself. You can't copy somebody else's words. He actually introduced me at the age of seven, the word plagiarism. My brother is older than I am. He said, you have to write your own. So I started taking 
the, the books, as you said, the books where I didn't particularly like the ending or I wanted to have a different story or wanted to write more about one of the secondary characters and started making up my own things, handwriting everything. So it, that's, that's, awesome. that's sort of where that, that came into play. And then uh, my mother bought me a typewriter at 10 because I was using up all her notebook paper. <laughs> You know, a lot of people these days could benefit from that plagiarism talk. <laughs> <laughs> I learned it very early. And uh, it, it, it actually, I know this is going to sound more serious than we probably need to get, but um, I had something stolen when I was in college. And it made me a, a real um, advocate when I was teaching English um, I informed my students that the one thing that would get them failed the fastest would be to copy somebody else's work. Definitely. And, I've, um, yeah. I've had articles stolen and, um, and as for books, I don't want to know, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, if they did it, well, I just, you know, I figure at this point, I just don't want to know, but um, I, I want to talk about your book, Burying Daisy Doe. I'm I'm okay. excited about that one. Can I read uh, just the blurb about it? Go and then it. we can talk about it. Okay. Every small town has one unsolved case that haunts its memory, festering for generations below the surface with the truth of humanity's darkness. Star Kavanaugh is obsessed with the one that tore her family apart. Over 60 years ago, Daisy Doe was murdered and discarded outside Pineville, Pineville, Alabama, buried without a name or anyone to mourn her loss. When Starr's father tried to solve the case, he was also killed. Now a cold case detective with resources of her own, Starr is determined to get to the bottom of both crimes. But she'll have to face an entire town locked in corruption, silence, and fear, and the same danger that took two other lives. The only people in town she can trust are her grandmother and the charming Mike Luinetti, and both of them trust a God Star isn't sure she believes in. Can Christians so focused on, on the good really help her track down this evil? I love it. I hope I pronounced Mike's name correctly. You did. You did. I was kind of waiting to see <laughs> why you said that. Um, it, uh, I, I, and don't ask me where I came up with that name. Um, Mike, um, Mike's description uh, based, is based on some people that I know. And um, I kind of pulled a name out of thin air and then went and researched it to make sure I had a, the right name and the right spelling. So, Those are the best. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, his, so his us, name kind of came out of thin air. <laughs> so, so tell us about your story. You've written um, quite a few books, and I went through some of your titles. Um, you have a lot of love-inspired uh, suspense books, um, starting with Memory of Murder. And I think the last one you did is a murder among friends, right? Um, actually, that's reversed. Uh, a murder oh, among okay. friends was the first one, and memory okay. murder was the last one. I did six okay. for Love Inspired, and uh, last year I released a book called Murder in the Family, which yes. was from Firefly Southern Fiction, and it recently won Book of the Year or tied for Book of the Year fiction. Oh, congratulations! The, uh, the Sela Awards at the Blue Ridge Mountain Conference. 
but you also write nonfiction as well. You have quite a few books, um, devotionals, and I, I caught on to that because I write devotionals too, and I, I just love a good devotional. And you've got um, like Heavenly Humor for the Dieter's Soul, Heavenly Humor for the Woman's Soul, Whispers of Wisdom for Busy Women, um, Trusting Jesus Every Day, Devotions to Increase a Woman's Faith. Um, I mean, and that's just, and so God made a dog. I'm guessing you have dogs. Um, I did at the time. The uh, <laughs> Those are books that I've all contributed to. Those books all have multiple authors. And um, it, it it was such a joy to be a part of that because yeah. um, you connected with other people who had these same stories. And with one of those, and I honestly cannot tell you which one it is at this moment, um, they wound up running short on devotion. So I got to, at the last minute, write five extras for that particular volume. And um, oh, I wrote devotionals for uh, a media site for six months and really honed, turning in 15 a month um, wound up really honing my devotional skills. But for the near future, I'm planning on focusing more on fiction. But uh, the last devotional that I wrote was my mother's quilts, which was um, a rather emotional undertaking because it was based on the 20, the 30 heirloom quilts that my brother and I inherited from my mother. Oh, that's beautiful. uh, It's it's kind of a family story. They're organized in um, kind of from the moment my mother started quilting again because she had quilted when she was young but then she got married and had two um, difficult children and uh, so she quit she stopped quilting for a while so she started quilting again when I was a teenager and so it start kind of picks up there and it goes through the different the quilts some of which were um quilts she made and some of which were quilts that we had inherited that were family heirlooms, um, two of which were over 100 years old when I wrote it. Those are treasures. Um, they are. What treasures? Um, that was the last devotional I did. So far. <laughs> so far. So far, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um Okay, so let's let's talk about your new book, Burying Daisy Doe. Can you um, tell us how you got the idea for it, or you know, where do you get your ideas for suspense? Do you watch shows? Uh, this, um, you know, shows uh, on television. Oh, I watch, yes, I, I watch a lot of true crime shows. I read a lot of true, true crime books. Uh, the first back in the day when I was first scribbling those, I want this to end differently. Those were mysteries. Um, I cut my teeth on Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and oh, yeah. all those teen mysteries. And um, I've always loved, you know, the Agatha Christie, the the puzzle, the cozy mystery puzzle kind of book. And yeah. it just kind of built from that. Um, I found myself leaning more toward authors like Alex Marwood and um, J.T. Ellison, um and Jamie Jo Wright, things that had a more of a psychological twist to them. And it went, it kind of built from that. Uh, it's just, it's been part of my nature. Um, I had a friend who once told me, she said, she said, you really cannot start a book without a dead body, can you? 
And the the truth is that even when I tried to write something other than suspense, it usually started out with a dead body. So it it just it became the the genre that I I fell into. Um, it, It I guess my mind is just twisted that way. But I love the building, the suspense, um, to torture my characters and to keep the readers guessing. Um, when when you build on suspense, do you, um, do you just um, say, what can I do to make this even more suspenseful? I'll throw in a rainstorm. Or I'll, oh, yeah. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> and it's lightning, tell, too. <laughs> when I'm teach, I teach a class on... Um, saggy middles for writers. This is the how to bolster the middle of your book because that's where a lot of writers um, start to fall off. They have a really good beginning. They mm-hmm. know where they're going, but maintaining that suspense through that middle section is one of the difficult chores in writing. And um, I, I advise people all the time, you get stuck. You're not sure what to do. I said, shoot somebody. Have a car crash through the window. <laughs> It doesn't have to make sense at the time. It's it's like jar yourself because it'll spur those creative moments and you'll figure it out. Um, I had, for instance, uh, I'm working on a, a new manuscript and I've kind of written myself into a corner and I thought, well, what can I do to just, it, you know, jar this loose? And I had somebody walk up on the street and slap one of my characters just out of the blue, just walk up. And then what happens is that you start the what if, why were they, why were they, what has happened that they wanted to slap this person? And it jarred my creative juices loose. And I went, and now that doesn't happen anymore. But what happens is it prompted a confrontation that needed to happen. So it, I'm always looking for ways to keep people um, in peril. Yes, because, I mean, you need, you need that. You need conflict, and you need, in a suspense novel, you need suspense and something to keep you on the mm-hmm. edge of your seat, right? Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. um, was this, was Burying Daisy Doe based on um, a real crime? I mean, because there are no. so many similar crimes out there. Um, actually, it, it, it is not. Um, and, and you're right. There are a lot of similar crimes out there. Um, I'm fascinated by cold cases. Yeah. And um, it, it is one of those, uh, I grew up, um, I lived in Nashville from the time I was 10 to the time I was 60. And spending all of that time in the Nashville area, one of the things that you can't escape from that time frame was the Marsha Trimble case, which um, Marsha was um, killed. I think she was nine. Her body was found a few days later, but it was never solved. Hmm. And Hmm. it changed Nashville forever. It changed the way people saw their neighbors. It, It altered the way the neighborhood where she lived uh, interacted with each other because it was a suburban neighborhood, very peaceful, very quiet. She went out and just never came back. And at that time, it was not unheard of for girls her age to just wander neighborhoods. 
when it was back in the 70s. It was All a right. very peaceful time. And yeah. it took 40 years for that case to be solved. Well, when it was finally solved, the superior work that the Metro Nashville Police Department did in collecting evidence from the time of the murder of the crime scene and where she was found um, was instrumental in that case being solved 40 years later. Because if they had not been so careful and the evidence not so carefully preserved, um, there's no telling that it would ever have been solved. And and the evidence back then really wasn't as carefully preserved. Mm -mm. Yeah. No, and it was a it was a DNA um, result that eventually solved the case. But and in the seventies, that didn't exist. I mean, yeah. people today you hear about DNA results, and we think it's it's so commonplace. But DNA wasn't used until um, the nineties, I believe, is when it was first widely used in terms of crime investigation. So, and I'm sure a lot um, of people sat in prison most of their lives who didn't do it, <laughs> didn't do the crime. Right. The Equal Justice Initiative is um, based on um, the idea that there are people who are in prison who don't need to be there. So there's there's a lot of things that have happened, but in terms of Daisy Doe, it, that was a combination of uh, my fascination with Marsha Trimble's case and Um, I'd started doing some reading on the Dixie Mafia, which plays a minor role in this book. And the the idea that um, corruption can embed itself in a community and be almost impossible to uproot. And one of the things I wanted to investigate was um, a murder that wasn't what it seemed that you think it's and I and I spent a great deal of time in the book building this up and I've had readers tell me they had no idea they did not see the the truth of the crime coming and it it's it's sort of like Star Kavanaugh is my main character and she goes into this town with the idea she's got one thing in her mind that the reason this was caused, but she stays open to different. And what happens is the deeper she digs, the more things start coming to light, some of which don't even have anything to do with the murder, but they put her in danger because of what she's uncovering. Hmm. So it just, it's, I love these, um, the intricate, the spider web. Um, kind of investigations where you never know where it's going to lead, and it doesn't lead where you think it's going to. Do you do you play chess? Do you ever feel like you're playing a chess game with yourself? <laughs> um, sometimes. Now, I, I do play chess, but I haven't played in a very long time. Um, that was another thing that I did with my brother. He taught me poker and chess. Um, <laughs> and both of those strategies kind of come into play when you're looking at a cold case investigation. Um, One of the things, um, one of the best true crime shows on the air is the first 48. Yes. And that, that's an immediate crime investigation. The murder has just happened. They're following this through. Um, And so there's more of the, the physical, the, the evidence examination. There's, there's more immediacy to it. Whereas in a cold case, 
is investigated primarily through conversation and reviewing endless boxes of documents. Um, it can be incredibly tedious to investigate a cold case because you're not looking at the immediacy of evidence and witnesses and stuff like that. Um, so a cold case detective has to approach investigation in a slightly different angle than someone who is going with the immediacy following a murder. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that fascinated me too, because there's, there's some in-depth psychological aspects to it. People change their stories. Cold cases are often broken because somebody who lied 20 years ago has changed their mind about lying. They got mad at the person they were supporting. And so all of a sudden they come forward. Um, people's perspective changes. What they remember changes. And so it can be yeah. interesting to come at it from that different angle. So that, that's, that, that's, that's one of the fascinating things. This sounds weird, um, maybe to people who aren't writers, but do you mm -hmm. ever get totally connected to your characters or do you, do you mourn for them? Do you, um, I mean, because you kind of get into their, their head, you know, they come out of your I, head. I do. <laughs> there is a scene at the very end of Daisy Doe. Every time I read it, I cry. And, and it's, it's an emotional moment of, closure and it wasn't in the original manuscript um, but it it came about when the editor who was working with me on the book who was amazing pushed me to to write a slightly different ending and as as I started breaking it down and looking at it I knew this was the ending the book needed and you know as I'm typing it I'm sobbing and so I was so into Star's head at that moment and in her place and in her heart that I couldn't help but cry. And um, Star is not me. Her experiences are not mine. Um, I'm very, but I lived with Star for over a decade. And so there is, there, I, I do get into her head. We kind and, of live vicariously uh, through characters sometimes, too, you know. Uh, yes, and she's gutsier than I ever thought about being. Which, <laughs> so she, she, she goes into this with her eyes wide open and knowing that she could easily be killed, but it's this important to her to find the truth in this. Do your characters um, carry weapons, or are they skilled at in hand-to-hand -hand combat fighting or anything, what um, kind of um, tools are in their tool chest? In Star's case, she is a former Metro Nashville police detective. And so she, uh, obviously, um, she's a, she is an experienced marksman. She has, but tries not to carry a 9-milliliter Glock, millimeter Glock. Um, that's her weapon of choice. Um, but as a privately licensed detective, she doesn't want to carry it unless she feels like her life is in danger uh, for a variety of reasons. And in her case, one of the reasons she's reluctant to carry her gun is because she knows how quickly she'd be willing to use it. 
and um and and in some cases because she has a temper and she knows that if somebody that she cares about is threatened she would not hesitate to shoot someone as opposed to try to find some other solution so she won't hesitate to to use a gun so she tries not to carry it unless she absolutely feels like she needs to um the um the carry the main character in um murder in the family also has carries a gun she carries a 38 but she's a storm chaser and so her gun is primarily for coyotes and snakes and things that storms tear up and um, right. she does she does a lot of photography in storm ravaged areas and things she carries it all, almost all the time in part because of that she is constantly showing up in places where you know animals are wandering around and things have been stirred up and people are panicked so did you have to study weapons or were you a little familiar i've studied some weapons i have taken weapons training uh my brother's a collector and he's helped me a lot with the information um i went through last fall before the virus hit, I went through the Citizens Police Academy here in my little town, mm-hmm. and we did some firearms training there. And I got to talk with the local police and then the sheriff's deputies and the, the county uh, law enforcement. I do not no, own a gun at this time. But that's that's fun. I mean, every aspect of uh, mystery and suspense. I mean, there's so much to learn, police procedure and all mm-hmm. that, and, and you've done all that. And I mean, so anyone who's who's looking to become a mystery or suspense author, it's very helpful to um, to study study uh, the craft, not only the craft of writing, but everything that goes into it. Absolutely, and anyone who wants to write. Uh, for instance, police procedurals, there's a number of blogs um, and books out there um, that are actually targeted, written by law enforcement professionals and targeted at writers. Very plentiful. I listened to two or three different podcasts. Um, their whole goal is to educate writers and to get it right. Um, Lee Laughlin um, hosts every year the Writers Police Academy which is a convention that he brings in law enforcement officials and people from the major agencies and coroners, anyone who's involved in law enforcement, and they help, they're help. they there to help writers and answer questions. I have a friend who does Fight Right, and she has a mm-hmm. blog, and she has a book out and everything, and, and but of course she covers everything <laughs> from sword fighting to... <laughs> Uh, every type of martial arts and all that. <laughs> but it, oh, it yeah. is no, you know. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to end. Uh, we only have a few minutes, but talking about your Psalm ninety eight ministries, because you are speaker, um, a Bible a editor, teacher, author, publisher. So can you tell us a little bit about that in our short time? Three minutes left. <laughs> Um, that that uh, grew out of uh, my desire to reach um, my focus primarily women's groups and writers groups. And with the writers, I talk about the craft, the idea of working with publishing and Christian publishers specifically, and the different genres, um, both nonfiction and the fiction genres. 
And with women's groups, um, I, I go back to uh, I've developed on the number of studies that I've taught. I haven't published any of these, but um, uh, several um, aspects of um, the way women relate to each other, the way we relate to God, and the way we relate to Scripture. And so I have uh, one of my first studies that I did was um, I jokingly called Paul is not the original male chauvinist pig. Oh, because I saw that. There's, there's, so, there's so many misconceptions that get repeated over and over and over again about Paul and his relationship with women and his instructions with women. And so that's that's one of those things that I have a heart for. But um, Yes, it, there, uh, there are it, many it, misconceptions about Paul, and he's one of the there, there people I'm looking forward to meeting in heaven. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, yeah. the Psalm 90, 98 Ministries came. The Psalm ninety eight is my favorite psalm, and it's not. It's a song of praise, but it's not just make a joyful noise. It's make a lot of noise and um, get up there and praise God for what He's done with His mighty arm. And for me, it's a it's a psalm not only of praise but also action. It's like get up off your desk and do something. Well, you know, I, I encourage people to, to go and check out your website because you have a list of all the things that you do, you know, like hikers, scuba diver, you know, <laughs> on and on. And I think, I think that's fun. Um, but um, I hope that uh, those who listen, our, our listeners will go and check out your social media. You're, I'm assuming you're on all the social media places and even some, there's some new places too these days. <laughs> Well, I'm not on everything. I'm most active on Facebook and um, uh, Twitter. Uh, I have Instagram accounts and LinkedIn and Pinterest, but I'm primarily on Facebook. Well, thank you so much, Ramona. And um, we hope you'll come back to our show sometime and talk about your future book. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too.